Well, good morning. Children ages uh, 5 through 5th grade are welcome to be dismissed for Bible Explorers. And we thank you for those willing servants willing to teach them. And I thank you to the sound booth for giving me a second chance with this microphone. <laughs> you may recall last time I was in front of you and did a little fishing with Josh up here for two or three <laughs> minutes. Two or three minutes on untangling it. <laughs> What a joy it is to be with you today. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity to come before you. And Lord, we just thank you as we gather and look into your word, Lord. I pray, Father, that I would decrease and that you would increase, Lord. And may your word go forth today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to begin with a, with a personal story. Six years, five months ago, I got a phone call on a Saturday morning. It was my brother-in-law. After I had said hello, he replied with much sadness in his voice. Uh, they had just taken Amy to the hospital, and they think she's had a stroke. After we hung up, I contacted my parents who immediately started driving up to Vermont, where they were staying for the weekend. A little while later, Bill, my brother-in-law, called and said it was confirmed it was a stroke and that she was in surgery. After that, um, that afternoon, Kareth and I, we, we drove up with our, with our boys to Vermont to see Amy. I had the rest of that morning and all afternoon for that two-and-a-half-hour drive up to Burlington to think about what I would say when I saw her. But seeing my sister laying in the, in the hospital bed, there, there were no words. There was nothing I could say that would fix the situation. Uh, as, as we will see today, I was like Eliphaz, not knowing what to do next. If you're a visitor today, we are glad that you're here. For the past seven weeks, we've been looking together at the book of Job. And today we'll be looking at Eliphaz, one of Job's three comforters, and his first response in Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's worth mentioning uh, last week, in uh, chapter 3, the book of Job transitioned from the narrative to poetry. And we see this with a lot of repetition. First, Job speaks, and then Eliphaz speaks, and then Job will speak again, and Bildad will speak. And then Job will speak, and then Zophar, and then Job again. And this cadence repeats one and a half more times. Some context for today. Satan has presented himself to the Lord two times. And God boasts in Job each time. Job has been handed over to Satan, and Satan does his worst, with the exception to not kill him. 
First, taking Job's earthly possessions, including his children. Next, Satan attacks Job with his health by causing loathsome sores all over his body. However, in each attack, Job, Job's integrity remains and the response is not in sin, but rather worship. Job's three friends hear what has happened and they have come to show sympathy and comfort him. But as we hear, as we heard, sorry, as we heard a few weeks ago from Don George's message, Job's situation is so extreme in the eyes of his friends that Job's friends essentially see Job as just that, dead. For seven days and seven nights, they sat on the ground in silence, and then Job opened his mouth. And one commentator I read put it this way, Job's desperate words, although not addressed to his friends, demand some comment. Now they can no longer sit in silence and have to say something even if it's not 100% truth. In today's passage, we will see a good response and we will see a wrong response. First, the good response. Eliphaz starts off well. Notice the tone of his voice. One commentator has, has this to say about Eliphaz. The most sympathetic of the comforters being, begins hesitantly and apologetically. Job 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Job's three friends have responded to the news and came to comfort. Eliphaz sees how low and depressed Job is. And just listen to Job lament from chapter 3. And he has, and he starts off in a good way, trying to relate to Job, hesitantly and apologetically. And now, words of encouragement, verses 3 and 4. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. This was a proper response to Job. As well, as we will see in chapter 29, Job is speaking how he did these things. Uh, Job 29, verses 7 through 10. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the noble was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. Verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. In verse 24, I smiled on them when they had no confidence 
in the light of my face they did not cast down. Eliphaz's reminder in Job 4, verses 3 and 4, were good for Job to hear. When we are going through suffering, it is easy to look within, within and focus on the problem. But having good, godly friends to come alongside and remind us of truths can change our mindset. In the current situation, Job is faint-hearted, no confidence, and could use a smile or a hug or even a sympathetic groan. Eliphaz would have done well to love his friend. Close his mouth and sit in silence for another seven days. We have such a terrible time with silence. But now comes the wrong response. Uh, verses 5 and 6. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? In the integrity of your ways, your hope. Eliphaz was doing so well. Bildad, Zophar, and himself hear the terrible news, and they come to see their friend. Eliphaz was just encouraging Job by reminding him of what he has done for others, but now starts to rebuke him by insinuating he cannot do for himself what he preached to others. Now, to be fair, we don't know the tone of his voice here. Uh, so one commentary I, I read would like to give Eliphaz the benefit of a doubt and find his words not a taunt, but a kindly reminder that Job's past life of godliness has given him resources for the present crisis. But now, in the next two verses, Eliphaz makes known his thinking, his reasoning, and really the thinking of Job's other two friends, Bildad and Zophar, that will carry for the next 24 chapters with that cadence of back and forth speeches. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or were, where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Ouch. There, there it is. Eliphaz is convinced the innocent simply do not perish and are not destroyed. But is that true? Let's read what Jesus has to say in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, 
it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Eliphaz's oversimplification, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer, is only partially right because this does not always hold up in human experience during one's lifetime. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Eliphaz spent his friendship capital with Job by accusing him, saying that Job's suffering was a direct result of a secret sin, and that was wrong. Yesterday, we celebrated Christmas. Can you imagine if Job's friends were in Bethlehem when Jesus was born? This was the most joyous, miraculous time, angels announcing the birth of our Lord and Savior to shepherds. God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, has come down to us in the form of a baby. And Mary and Joseph had to stay in a stable? Eliphaz. God would never allow this to happen to the innocent or the upright. Surely Mary or Joseph have sinned. Can you hear them talking amongst themselves, oversimplifying Joseph and Mary's situation? Having to give birth in a manger? No proper hygiene? Alone? Eliphaz, if only Joseph had made a reservation, they wouldn't be out in the cold. And God exalts the humble, the righteous, the oppressed, and punishes the wicked. I could spend a good deal of time here, but I think I'll leave that for possible small group discussions this week. Don George opened his sermon a few weeks ago with words to describe the comforters, arrogant, worldly, scoffers, assuming, short-sighted, and proud. Does any of these words jump out at us at Jesus' crucifixion? Yes, even here, we can hear them talking. He helps others, let him save himself, Matthew 27, 42. Then hear this from 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Only God can boast, just like he did with Job. How can we apply this to us today? We are called to encourage the faint-hearted by building relationships. We are called to encourage with our encouraging actions. We are called to encourage with our encouraging words. Relationships, actions, and words. First, by building relationships, Unlike Job's three comforters that were doing the complete opposite, 
by a way of an RCCA, a root cause corrective action of the situation, they were trying to drill down to the one action that caused all this. We need to take time to really listen to a person who is suffering. Job's friends were trying to ID the problem so they could fix it. Or maybe they were IDing the problem so that they could make sure not to repeat it and have Job's situation happen to them. And this is where they start to go wrong. They stop focusing on loving their friend and start focusing on fixing their friend's circumstances. I've been reading a book um, called Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart by Kenneth C. Hulk. In the chapter called Wishing Hurt Away, Don't You Wish, he has this to say, fixing can be good as long as it's dinner or the other person's car. But trying to fix a person is not appropriate or even an obtainable goal. Here's a good rule of thumb. Fix things relate to people. Building relationships can look like joining a small group, getting to know the people on a deeper level than just a Sunday morning, how was your week type of question. We build relationships with people through common interests, sharing hobbies. We build relationships by sharing a meal together. We relate to people by encouraging the faint-hearted with our actions. We encourage the faint-hearted by singing Christmas carols to our neighbors, friends, and loved ones, by helping with serve projects, stacking wood, painting and staining a home or a garage, repairing a barn. We encourage by making and taking a meal to someone. We encourage the faint-hearted by just sitting and listening. We relate to people by encouraging words. We should be pointing the the person that is suffering to the who, God, and not earthly temporal possessions. I have seen this time and time again here at FCBC. With my own family. with other church member families. Boy. Groups of people visiting and hurting. Visiting the hurting, the suffering, and the shut-in. Showing the love of Christ in words. Music, songs, cards, notes of encouragement. Earlier this week, in the, uh, in the um, weekly gathered that went out, as we prepared for today, did you catch the phrase that Paul uses? Not the phrase, sorry. <laughs> did you catch the categories in Paul, that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14? And we urge you, brothers, admonish, admonish the idle or unruly, as some translations say. 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Eliphaz starts off strong. Job is faint-hearted, and he tries to encourage him. However, as we read, he continued to rebuke and accuses Job. Eliphaz didn't take the time to understand the whole picture before speaking. If only he had thought maybe there was a bigger picture than just earthly possessions and health. A rebuke is okay, even necessary, if the person who is suffering is truly in sin. However, a rebuke is not okay if that person is not in sin, but instead faint-hearted or weak. How do we know the difference? We need to take the time to listen to the person suffering and ask God for wisdom and understanding the situation. Relate to people. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. James 1.19 How did Jesus show us we should encourage the faint-hearted? How did Jesus build relationships? Encourage with his actions and encourage with his words? First, building relationships, Jesus took on human flesh when he came to be with us. He humbled himself to relate with us. Jesus took the time to make disciples by forming a relationship with them and living life together. Next, Jesus' encouraging actions of healing. The lepers come to mind. Feeding the 5,000. Eating with sinners like Zacchaeus. And dying on the cross for our sins to save us. Jesus' encouraging words, the Beatitudes come to mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, just to name a couple. I find these words very encouraging in Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In conclusion, the lie of oversimplification. Today, I started with a personal life event with my sister's stroke. And I'll conclude with the rest of the story. A few weeks after the stroke, I was visiting Amy, eating lunch with her. When a doctor came in, he said they wanted to do further blood tests to look for this blood disorder that would cause clotting that could lead to stroke. So you see, until now, everything had, all the tests that they've been doing had been coming back normal, and there was no reason why she should have suffered this. While he was talking, he asked, if she had any siblings. She points to me and says, yes, one brother. Well, he said, we want to do this disorder because if it comes back, we want to do this test, sorry, for this disorder because if it comes back that you have it, there's a high li likelihood that he has it too. And my confidence was just shaken. 
because until now, I didn't really think a stroke could happen to me. How foolish was my thinking. Of course it could happen to me, and not because of a blood disorder, but just because, if God willed it, it took me months, I'm sad to say, to finally remember who my Redeemer is. And, and where my hope is found. How about you? Where is your hope? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? C.T. Studd, an English missionary to China, India, and Africa, wrote a poem, poem only one life will soon be passed. It's, uh, it's quite a long poem, um, but in between each of the stanzas, it's written, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you would like to know more about hope in Jesus and making him your Lord and Savior, I'd like to encourage you to talk with a family member or a friend that you came with today. Talk with myself or any of the pastors here today. Love you, faith family. Amen.